Talk Radio 570 KVI. It's KVI Want to Know Weekends. KVI Want to Know Weekends. Get ready to raise a toast with Seattle's most spirited hour of talk, Happy Hour Radio. Explore the best in Washington wines, beer, spirits, food, and more with your guide, Seattle sommelier, Christopher Chan. It's Happy Hour Radio, right now on Talk Radio 570 KVI. Well, good evening, Seattle. Hello, Puget Sound, and welcome to Happy Hour Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Chan, advanced sommelier, your weekend wine guy, and your Commodore of Cocktails. Hey, thanks for taking uh, this Saturday night and every Saturday night uh, to spend some time with me and all my great guests right here in 570 KVI. Uh, we talk about wine, spirits, food, cocktails, beer, events, and education from all around the world, and I'm excited about today's show. I've got a, a local wine scribe. Uh, he's uh, he's well-known, probably best known as my stunt double. His name is Chris Nishiwaki, and he uh, does uh, a good job of writing stories about wine and travel and food, and also uh, makes wine over Walla Walla, helping out uh, one of the iconic winemakers there. Also coming up on the show is uh, the Trelato family. Trelato family is a really a wine empire, and they uh, are the portfolio ambassadors of uh, many different brands uh, from France and, and United States. Uh, we're, we're, we will hear all about that story with John Trelato, who's now the CEO of the Trelato Family Wine Group, and uh, we're going to chat about one of his... His dear to his taste buds wineries. It's called Sanford. It's an iconic wine down in the uh, Santa Barbara region. Um, they make Pinot Noir and Chardonnay. If you ever saw the movie Sideways, uh, you would recognize that Sanford was one of those destinations. And one of my favorite wines, because it goes way back, and one of the originals in my early career that I remember tasting. So Sanford, we had a Chardonnay, Pinot Noir. Actually, we had two Pinot Noirs. Um, but it is March. It is the uh, Washington Wine Month. So... You guys should be drinking Washington wine. Perhaps uh, I've got Chris Nishiwaki. He's got two wines for me, and they're blind, so I don't know what they are, um, although it's red in the glass. Uh, anyway, uh, we're going to have a good time, and right now, hey, Chris Nishiwaki, welcome to Happy Hour. Thank you for having me. Right on. So um, we've known each other for, gosh, I think about 10, 12, 14 years, um, but I wasn't sure what you do. Tell me, what's your background? You're a journalist? Been writing for about 26 years, 27 years. Uh, originally, as a sports writer, and uh, my first job out of college was in Kansas City. Came back from Kansas City and reconnected with Nancy Leeson. She came to speak at one of my classes at the University of Washington. And then as soon as I came back, she kept reminding me, kept hounding me about maybe switching beats to food and wine. Food and wine was the restaurants and the wine industry were were growing. What year was this? This was 97. Okay. And I really finally made, relented and made the switch in 99, thereabouts. Uh-huh. And so you, you moved away from the popcorn and hot dogs to <laughs> gourmet popcorn. Yeah. And it was, uh, it, the, it's a, folks like Nancy made it really, made the transition really easy. Cynthia Nims was the, the food editor at Seattle Magazine. So you gave me yeah. my first big break there. Uh, that all of, I, I'm eternally thankful for maternally grateful yeah. <laughs> great people <laughs> yeah. and great bosses to work uh, and Cynthia is now an author she lives in West Seattle and does uh, is with the Lady Dom Descafier and she's um, quite a proponent of getting women and recognizing women in culinary and wine and so uh, you you were doing sports writing you, you got a gig in Kansas City which was a real great sports town yeah I, I had a good opportunity to cover 
some interesting beats. Uh, covered KU basketball on occasion, which is huge over there. The, the Kansas City Chiefs, the NFL team there, was doing really well. The Royals weren't doing so well, but I had a chance to, at, at a very early stage in my career, cover some major beats. Fun. And so you uh, came, are you a Pacific Northwest native? Originally uh, born in Argentina, uh-huh. then moved to L.A. as a teenager, and then came up to the University of Washington. <laughs> so you're an illegal is what you're telling me. <laughs> <laughs> Naturalized now, but right. yeah, it's uh, coming to the University of Washington, choosing the University of Washington was probably one of the best decisions I've ever made. Met ah. some lifetime friends, right some, met some professors that I'm still in touch with and been very, very influential in my life and in my career. Excellent. Well, I'm a Husky and go dogs. Go dogs. Uh, uh, the Pac-12 tournament uh, just took place, and uh, we loved Casey Plum. Anyway, um, how about that Casey Plum? She should be a winemaker with a Merlot yeah. maker, right? Juicy yeah. Plum. Yeah, yeah. That's <laughs> she. She finds an agent once she turns pro. You should probably market that. Speaking of wine, you uh, dabble in the wine business, weren't you? Uh, tell me when you first started actually uh, touching grapes and getting involved with uh, cleaning barrels and things like that. I've uh, been apprenticing under Aaron Morrell since uh, the 2013 vintage. I had an opportunity, a very spontaneous opportunity to, to come work for him during the 2013 vintage and drove out. My car almost didn't make it. Halfway through, uh, my car started overheating. I called Dick Boucher, the the uh, famous uh, grape grower, gave me a hand and then made it the rest of the way to Walla Walla and been going back ever since. And Aaron's been a... Uh, uh, great mentor to learn from. Aaron Morrell, uh, he's actually a California kid, right? He grew up here. He grew up in uh, in the Bremerton area, Silverdale, and then went to UNLV to play golf. And his brother was in Napa. I followed his brother, who was in the culinary arts, was hmm. a chef, very, su- very successful chef. And then that's how he ended up in, in Napa. I was there for a long time, worked for Silver Oak for... A uh, bunch of other wineries there. There's uh, a bunch down there. Yeah, yeah, a few. And also ended up consulting at Matthews, and that's how he ended up coming back to to the Seattle area. Right. So Matthews, obviously, in Woodenville. Um, and now he's actually based out of Walla Walla, and he has, he's working with uh, uh, Josh Lawrence, I believe. They have a new wine property or a... a um, what do you call it? A winemaking facility. Yeah. So the uh, M&L, so the initials for Morel and Lawrence, it's a, it's a winemaking facility. That they, Aaron makes everything there. It's not it's not so much a... a um, it's not uh, a sexy chateau. No, no, but it's uh, it, it has substance. It's a and, big warehouse that has lots of uh, thoughtful uh, tools and equipment, uh, stone fermenters or concrete fermenters and stainless steel tanks and barrel rooms and yeah that's sexy to me <laughs> <laughs> okay but uh he so he makes the wines for uh the lawrence family so guard vintners uh makes the his own label alarm and a couple of other producers uh mullen road which is cake breads brand in washington right. so all together uh boy about 600 tons of fruit or so, I want to say. That's a lot. I remember p- popping in and seeing, uh, you know, you had the crew there and the music blaring, and they were uh, crushing, destemming, and uh, making it all happen over there in Walla Walla. It's work, and but it's it's cathartic, and that's probably why I keep going back. And there's always something new to learn. Well, sure. Another vintage, another way to manage the fruit, manage the uh, tannins and uh, or the, the fruit flavor profile, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So let's talk about uh, your your transition from sports to writing about food, culinary, and travel. Um, 
you're better known now these days as uh, a, a, a wine writer, and you've done articles for what are some of the publications? Uh, Sip Northwest, uh, Imbai Magazine, uh, oh boy, Puget Sound Business Journal. Okay. Uh, covering the business of wine there, which has been an interesting angle. Uh, did a little bit of work for Seattle Magazine. My first job in uh, food was uh, food writing was Seattle Magazine. Seattle Met was the wine columnist there for a little bit. Yeah, so, it's, so how do you uh, approach that? I mean, wh- how do you figure out what to write about? Do you like, hmm, this I, this came in the mail today? Yeah, I like to really I enjoy the research, the the reporting side of journalism. So I like to really dig deep and find wineries that are maybe overlooked or stories that are overlooked. It could be a, a big winery, but there's some nuance to it. That that's really what what thrills me still in, in, in journalism. A lot of the other big brands, I'm not opposed to writing about big brands, but there's so much information already out there that sure. I don't think it's as useful. They if, have if the I, resource to do that. Yeah. And, uh, it's always fun to uncover the gem or to find something and sort of shout yeah. it out because you're maybe the first, second, or third to, to do that, but certainly yeah. uh, hopefully not the last. And when, when it comes to wine, um, did you have any training in wine? I mean, obviously you were probably sipping brewskis and soda pops at the ballpark, but... Uh, yeah. How did you I, get into wine? I was a, originally a beer drinker. I feel like I'm having an affair. Well, being in Kansas wine, City, so. there's a big company around there called Anheuser Busch, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's on the other side of the state, but that's Kansas City. It's a beer country. You're you're splitting the difference between Coors and and Anheuser Busch. So those are your choices. Yeah, there. Right. But apparently, the restaurant industry there is is uh, growing, and the wine, the the man for wine, is following suit. Which yeah, is, so Lemberger should be big with all the barbecue. Yeah. Uh, Washington grows some really good Lemberger. I, I say, let's sell it in Kansas City. Yeah, they should just call it burger wine, right? Yes. It <laughs> <laughs> would make sense. Speaking with Chris Nishiwaki, who is uh, based in Seattle, he does uh, wine, food, and travel reporting for um, numerous magazines. Uh, sometimes they call it a stringer. Is that, was that fair to say? Yeah, in the old days, they used to... Uh, line up uh, your, your copy in a column inch wide and then just straight down and would, they would measure with a string how long it was and that's how the term stringer oh, came about. That's cool. Um, when you taste a wine tell me w- w- what's your philosophy or approach? How do you sort of take a wine in and truly give it um, its, its due? I look at a lot of things. Ultimately balance. You want to look for balance in a wine. Uh, also, in in fairness, I try to go back to wines multiple times. I think that's important. Wines uh, evolve or they show different on different days. And also, quite frankly, I look at price. Mm-hmm. I think it's it's important to have that in mind because ultimately, you're writing for the consumer, and the consumer has a budget. And are they getting value? I think the job of the journalist is to be an advocate for the consumer. So you think about uh, price. You think if it, about what's available. I th- it's uh, a lot of the major uh, wine magazines will publish a review by the and the wine sold out by the time it publishes. So I try to be. That's the challenge that well. with print and magazines because they're two months away, and so sometimes uh, they could get a big score and it goes viral, and then it's gone. Yeah. <laughs> I'm kind of like the print business itself. Yeah. <laughs> You're just a little bit late. Well, you you came. Uh, you brought two bottles of wine. You poured one here. I'm taking a look at it. It's a very dark um, black. 
purple core. Uh, it has a moderate staining of the tears. Uh, my first impression, that's a dark skin grape. It has uh, a little bit of uh, garnet rim or ruby rim, and uh, mm, it smells. Uh, it smells lovely. It's moderate intensity. It's ripe blackberry, uh, black cherry, boysenberry, some plum, and then some herbaceous notes, whether it's thyme or a bit of cedar. Um, but that's just on the nose. So what, how do you describe this one? When you write about a wine, when you taste a wine, what's the first thing you write about? Uh, color, I, I go through the grid as yeah. best I can. So color, bouquet, mid-palate, finish, and then ultimately a balance. And one of the things I like about this wine is is uh, the balance. On it. Okay, I took a sip. Mm. Um, fruits are, again, dark red, blue, and a little purple. Mm, tastes like a blend, but... Um, uh, the tannin is is medium minus, very integrated. Tastes like it's more. Well, it's balanced. There's both oak and uh, grape tannin. Um, alcohol is medium plus. Uh, acid. It seems like a very natural acidic wine. It tastes new world to me. Um, hmm. Uh, it kind of like a Syrah Rhone blend or something to me. That's my guess. Um, I don't know if it's a, a Merlot. No, it can't be Merlot. It's it's too purple. From which region? Oh, uh, you know, I I might say California because this seems really balanced to me, and it doesn't seem. It seems a little warm, but uh, I know that it's a lot of times Washington has to add a little acidity. But um, I I went doubt it's Washington. Let's see. No, I'm going California. Yeah. Yeah. What is it? Yeah, what do we got? It's 2013 Matthews Claret. Oh, it's a Claret. It is Bordeaux blend. 13 was the first vintage that I uh, apprenticed under, Aaron Morel. So this this wine's personal for me. All right. (laughs) And now it's personal. It also strikes that chord that uh, with Aaron has a really good touch with uh, the on the mid palate texture. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's across the board. But what's interesting. He'll make wine styles get different from one client to the other. And also, this wine was uh, rated the 27th best wine, according to the Wine Spectator. Well, they know what the heck they're talking about, so I love it. All right. And there's a new new beat writer that's going to be covering Washington. Okay, we'll figure that out. Hey, coming up next is John Trelato with the Trelato Wine Group. And uh, I've got Chris Nishiwaki here, uh, fooling my palate with some Matthews Claret. So stick around, folks. Be right back on Happy Hour Radio. A Northwest original, Lars Larson, live weekdays noon to 3, Talk Radio 570, KVI. KVI Want to Know Weekends continue. Now back to Happy Hour Radio with Christopher Chan. All right, folks. Hey, welcome back to Happy Hour Radio. Time for round two. Hope you got something great in your glass. Uh, I've got a bunch of wine in front of me. And uh, one of the big wine guys in the world, John Trelato, uh, is the CEO of Trelato Wine Group. It's a, a longtime family-run business that uh, was so successful, got real big. We're not going to waste any time. Hey, John Trelato, welcome to Happy Hour. Hey, thanks for having me. What uh, what a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much. Um, it's an honor to talk to somebody with your experience and obviously the name. Let's talk about the family. How did the family get into wine? Oh, gosh. Uh, so my grandfather, my, my mother's father, 
uh, owned a retail store in Chicago uh, back in the late 30s, early 40s. And then my father's father owned a retail store in Chicago in 1955. So we really started at the retail end of the business, uh, each of them with one single store uh, here in Chicago. Was it called Terlatos or something? What was the name? Uh, no. So my grandfather Paterno's store was called Grand and Western, uh, and my, my grandfather Terlato's store was called Leading Liquors. <laughs> I like it. You said back in the 30s, so uh, that was right right bef- during Prohibition. Did they uh, have a little, a- a- little back after. door? <laughs> after. After Prohibition. Okay. <laughs> clearly, a- clearly after Prohibition. Wow. Uh, in fact, my, gran- my grandfather, his, his retail store was first a restaurant. Uh, and then he changed it over from a restaurant to a to a retail store. So it was in 1942 or thereabouts where it actually became a retail store. And, how- and then we went we went from retail to wholesale to import to export to winery ownership. So we kind of made our way up the up the channels of distribution. Well, it's cool that you started with uh, the customer first. Obviously, on the retail retail side, you got to deal with people, and um, it's always about the people and the end product. You uh, you first importing wine um, and was. Were you involved at this time? What's the timeline no, for Chilato? No, no. Okay, so timeline is uh, grandfathers both started their retail stores. My grandfather, Paterno, established uh, – my, my father went to work for my grandfather in 1955. Uh, they started the importing business in 1960, uh, which at the time was called Paterno Imports. Right. So we had – we had the wholesale company, which was Pacific Wine Company in, in Illinois. We had the importing company, which started in 1960. And we purchased our first winery in 1996. So but we ran those businesses along the way. And it was my my brother uh, got involved in the business in uh, 1980. And I got involved in the business in 1990 after, uh, after having graduated law school and, and having worked outside the business for three years. Well, I do remember the name Paterno Imports, and that takes me back. I got in the biz about 1997 in official capacity in the wine side, but obviously doing the food and beverage thing much before that, long before that. Um, you, uh, as a CEO, that's your title, right? You're the CEO? So, no, no, that's my brother. My brother's the CEO. Uh, I'm more involved in on the winery side and, and on the uh, on the Burgundy book, so my brother's the CEO. <laughs> he's the guy, he's the one who has the, the majority of the responsibility. Okay, you get to go travel and uh, shake hands and try some wine, sip some barrel samples, right? Well, we yeah, we all have our work to do. That's right. Um, how, how big is the portfolio that Trelato Family Wine Group has? Oh, gosh. So, uh, on the importing side, we we represent about 60 winemaking families from around the world, and those 60 families have entrusted us with like 110 brands um, of wine from a variety of, of wine-growing regions from Italy, Spain, uh, France, uh, California, Canada, Austria. So, uh, But, you know, remember, we've been at it for almost 70 years, so... We've had some time to to build a nice portfolio. Sure, and are you re- representing those brands just in the in North America, or just the United States, or how far does your reach go? Yeah, so some of them are for the U.S., some of them are for North America, and some of them are global. Right? We have brands, we have families that have basically said, "Hey, listen, why don't you just? I want to make wine. You know, will you take care of my brand around the world?" Which is what we do. So it just depends on the family and what it is, what their needs are. Are you uh are you bi coastal and you're you're headquartered in Chicago, New York, or San Francisco, or how, how so many offices? Chicago, and then I spend a ton of time 
in California because one of my passions and one of my responsibilities is to be involved with the wineries and our winemaking and our vineyards and our farming. So I spent a lot of time in California and not just, you know, in an office. I mean, I was just in California uh, in in January and a week ago uh, pruning in the vineyards with our pruning teams. Well, you didn't have that rain coming down on you, did you? Well, I caught, you know what, I actually, in Napa, I caught it. The three days that I was there, the four actually four days that I was there, was right at the point where it wasn't raining. It had stopped raining on a Saturday and started again on a Thursday. So I was there without a whole time, without without a whole lot of rain. Interestingly enough, interesting is true. And when it comes to wine, we all have that moment. Did, did you? Obviously, you went to law school, so you probably had some nights where you needed a, a glass of wine <laughs> or a beer. But when was that moment for you? Um, was it in your youth with the grandpas? Uh, drinking wine or when did you sort of assimilate into the culture no you know it's interesting um you know wine was part of our the vignettes of life in our house we were you know having wine at the table at a young age my you know parents would and grandparents would mix it with water and so it was kind of part of part of life for us it, it, i've had this question asked of me before i will tell you that you know the epiphany epiphany if you will or the aha moment the eureka moment for me was not a moment it was actually it was actually a series of trips to uh, Burgundy over about 10 years, a period of about 10 years. And uh, meeting these Burgundian producers and, and, and spending time in the vineyards with them and, and listening them to them talk about their farming and their philosophy around wines that tell the tale of a place that are transparent kind of interpretations of a vineyard really struck me uh not just because they said it because they were, they were talking about it while we were drinking these wines while we were tasting these wines and it just you know over time it gave me this increasingly clear picture of how important the vineyards are in this whole process and i know that everybody talks about that but you know it, it also uh, requires a, a lot of restraint Right. If you're really trying to to craft wines or vinify wines that are an interpretation, a transparent interpretation of a place, of a vineyard, it really requires that the human being that's involved, you know, the man or the woman, doesn't over engineer or uh, over wine make, if you will. You know, sometimes I'll drink a wine and I go, you know, there's a lot of wine making going on in this glass. <laughs> yeah, there right? is. Right. Yeah, so, we've all had that. That was, it was really these Burgundian producers, and I had you know I had consumed wine all my life from all over the world, uh, but Burgundy was the place where it just started to come together for me. That's very cool, and I, I had the same story. Uh, in 1985, I, my first trip abroad was in Burgundy, and uh, I tell everybody I fell in love with French food, French girls, and French wine in some order. <laughs> in that order? Uh, well, some order. You know, it's, it gets a little blurry. <laughs> okay, okay. Well, another show, a different show. That's right. And now, do you speak French with all your travels? A little bit. I'm, it, it's actually my mission this year to become fluent. So I am. I'm. In fact, even uh, speaking French with my son, who's taking French in school, and he's helping me to become more fluent. But uh, it's it's a necessity. Yes, uh, and it, it makes it much easier to communicate and sort of relaxing, and it just sounds good too. I always enjoy that myself. <laughs> um, when it comes to uh, to selecting wines, how do you guys sort of vet the process? I mean, do you you meet the family? Do you have a big pasta meal and just sort of chat it up, or what? Yeah, look, the number one thing for us is that it needs to be a family business uh, that has a history and some longevity and a future. Uh, and then the wines have to be, they have to own their own vineyards, and the wines have to be extraordinary, predictably extraordinary for a period of time. 
we're, we're really looking to create relationships with families for many, many years, not just for five years or three years or 10 years even. Uh, and so the, the history of the family, the longevity, and, and the people that, were, that are actually behind the work and behind the wines and involved in the family are very, very important to us. So, yes, there's, there's a meal involved or many meals. And <laughs> we're, you know, we're talking about, you know, who are you? What do you do? What's important to you? What's your vision? You know, what are your kids? Are they involved in the business? Are they interested? Is there some type of succession plan here? You know, what happens next? So it's an, a number of different things, but it also includes that the wine needs to be, from our perspective, you know, delicious and age-worthy. Those are two of the hallmarks of, you know, the great and important wines of the world. Delicious when they're young and age-worthy as well. That's cool. That's well, it comes down to what's in the bottle, what's behind that cork. Yeah, yeah. And a lot of these families have some amazing stories. I mean, they're really interesting. And at that point, you know, you know that you have a family that's involved and invested in wine, and they have this authentic story. And that authenticity is really, really important. I think I think as we go further down the kind of rabbit hole of being in the age of, you know, social media and electronics and all of this information, you know, authentic stories, real stories, real people who are who are uh, own vineyards and are trying just to make wines that are are moving, you know, that, that are provocative. Uh, those are all authentic, interesting stories that, that the next generation of winemakers are, are interested in hearing. I agree. It's It resonates with, uh, it's the human side because we all have the family, and if you know what your parents did and your grandparents, and it all comes down to uh, maintaining that, the legacy that you share and, and stuff like that. Yeah, exactly. Well, it's interesting because it, part of me says, um, I, I was thinking in my back of my mind, Hey, welcome to the family. You know, <laughs> <laughs> no, no, that's a, that's a, that's a, you know, that's a long, uh, that's an old wives' tale. Let's that's put it right. that way. We're, we're. Uh, we're pretty, uh, we're pretty on the up and up. <laughs> well, I, I, one of my favorite movies is Godfather, so I just had to bring that up. But uh, I've got three <laughs> bottles of wine here, and when we come back from this break, we're going to dive into two of the Pinot Noirs. Um, one is uh, the Santa Rita Hills Appalachian. The other is a uh, blend of two vineyards, the Benedict and Sanford Vineyard. Then we have a great Chardonnay, and I have the pleasure of speaking with John Trelato of Trelato Family Wine Group uh, right here on Happy Hour Radio. Stick around, folks. We'll be right back. Big names, big news. Sean Hannity, weekdays 3 to 6 p.m., Talk Radio 570, KVI. It's KVI Want to Know Weekends, and you're listening to Happy Hour Radio. Now back to Seattle Sommelier, Christopher Chan. All right, Seattle, hope you're having a great Saturday night and got something tasting in your glass or on your way to someplace fabulous. I've got... Uh, well, one of my favorite names in the world of wine, Sanford. Uh, in my early career back in the 80s, I remember busting tables and working at a fine dining establishment and always wondering, seeing these bottles of Sanford go out, I suppose some Washington wines and some French wines, but Sanford always stuck in my mind, perhaps because I liked the movie Sanford and Sons, but they have no correlation. And I've got John Trelato and my pal Chris Nishiwaki here in studio, and John's on the phone. John, Sanford is part of the Trelato Family Wine Group. Tell me how this uh, property came to be. You know, so uh, in the in the very early days, uh, Michael Benedict and Richard Sanford were became partners, and they decided that they were going to launch this uh, this winery. They were going to they were going to plant grapes and and build a winery. Uh, and Michael Benedict, who was a botanist by training, um, was really the one who spent a lot of time researching 
the location. And he was looking for this perfect confluence of uh, interesting or unique uh, soil composition, as well as, you know, a very, very cool climate. And it was his belief in 1971 that he had, you know, stumbled upon that in his research uh, on this one particular uh, vineyard. Uh, sorry, it wasn't a vineyard. It was actually a bean farm. Uh, he found this farm on Santa Rosa Road, and because of his uh, background as a botanist, he realized that this one location actually had a completely unique uh, soil composition than even uh, those of the, the vineyards of the neighbors because of a geological event that had occurred about six or seven million years ago where the a, a hillside kind of fell off of itself and tumbled down the vineyard. And here he was looking at this vineyard that was completely uh, covered with Monterey shale from, from top to bottom, wow. which was a, a unique proposition. And, you know, we could talk about the geologic history, but it's a, a longer discussion. But he looked at this vineyard and said, okay, it's at the top of the the, um, the rise in Santa Rosa Road, the grade, if you will. Uh, and so the, it's, it's about two degrees cooler than uh, the bottom of the grade. And it's Monterey Shale top to bottom, which is, uh, you know, a, an oceanic-based uh, of oceanic-based composition. So, you know, Santa Barbara was underwater uh, probably 20 million years ago. And he said, this is a place where I want to plant grapes. And there wasn't a grapevine anywhere uh, nearby. So this was really a pioneering effort uh, on their part. And they, they both participated in this together, and they started this uh, vineyard. They planted it uh, on, uh, to Vitus vinifera on, on, on their own roots, which was kind of a unique proposition in and of itself. Because sure. It's, uh, susceptible phylloxera. Yeah. Phylloxera, right. But there had not been any, you know, he was a researcher. He had a, a researcher's mind. And so there had been no incidence of phylloxera anywhere near Santa Barbara. And so he believed that the, the rewards would far outweigh the risk of planting this uh, on its own roots, uh, planting the Vitus vinifera on its own roots. Uh, and he was right. Uh, and it's interesting because in my conversation with my Burgundian friends, they, they wished that they could plant uh, vines on their own roots because it's their belief that um, nursery-grown rootstocks actually act as a filter. Hmm. And that, right, this is a really interesting conversation. These are just some of the things that, you know, that I bring back. And as I'm sitting here thinking about, well, if we're going to develop new portions of this vineyard, um, why wouldn't we? Why wouldn't we put it on on Vitus vinifera on, it, on its own roots? And you know, there's lots of different perspectives. But my my feeling is that that the, the reward outweigh, outweighs the risk. So vineyards planted in 71, 72. Nobody's you know got a vineyard anywhere nearby. You know, they start to make their first wines. And and I have to tell you, I've tasted the Sanford and Benedict wines from the from the 70s and the 80s, and they were they're astounding. Wow, they're incredible. Uh, I'm mean, actually, I mean, they're just unbelievable. They're they're earthy and they're minerally, you know, forest floor. Uh, they're not fruity. They're not fruit forward. They're not jammy. They're not uh, high alcohol. They are very very subtle wines uh, that I think are you know great representations of the place. So this is how Sanford started, and then Richard and, and Michael, you know, parted company, and Richard kind of took over, and Michael kind of disappeared, and. We stepped into the scene um, in the in the late '90s. Uh, we kind of stepped in. Trying, Sanford needed some needed some sales and marketing help. Uh, we jumped in. Uh, we made an investment in the winery. We started kind of digging into you know what needed to happen next. 
and our family became more and more involved. And what was interesting is, you know, Michael Benedict, who had disappeared for, you know, I don't know, 20-something years, after about two or three years of our family's participation at Sanford, he actually showed up, you know, in the tasting room one day. And he said, you know, hi, my name is Michael Benedict. Wow. And everybody was, like, floored. They're like, really? I mean, the guy, you know, Michael Benedict has in, you know, this vineyard? And he said, look, I've been watching, you know, what you guys have been doing. And I've been paying very close attention to the decisions that the Trelato family has been making. And I'd like to be involved in this again. Wow. I, I think it's in the right place. And and Michael and I have become very close friends. Uh, we spend a lot of time together. It's interesting because his inspiration was Burgundy. Yes. Uh, it really, truly was. And he was looking for this cool climate, long growing season, you know, the right soil composition. He believed that he found it in this vineyard. Uh, he proved himself to be correct. And, and today he and I and Steve Fennell, who's our winemaker at Sanford, we spent a ton of time talking about, you know, the decisions that we make in the vineyard and the decisions we make in the winery and our barrel regimen and the different experiments that we can uh, uh, proceed with that would help us to, to really have this transparent interpretation of this vineyard. How exciting. Well, I'm, you, you made my mouth water talking about all this wine <laughs> and this story. I've got the, the Sanford Chardonnay. It's a 2014 Chardonnay here. Um, it's 100% Chardonnay, and you talk about a whole cluster pressing, a little bit of French oak. Um, tasting it, this is really a very pretty wine. And um, what's your take? Is this is this exactly what you wanted to produce? So, so this the Sanford and Benedict is actually a blend of the the Chardonnay grapes that come from both ranches. The two ranches are the Sanford and Benedict Ranch on the west and the Rinconada Ranch on the east. So we have forty different soil types on those two ranches, and this is a blend from wow. the two ranches, right? So it's a it, it's really a, a hom- I would say a homogenized version of what the, those two ranches have to offer. So when you ask me, is this exactly where you want it to be? Yes. For for the wine that is the blend from the entirety of the two properties, this wine is a good representation. The I think the clearer representation is are the single vineyard wines and the single block wines that come from a very specific soil composition that are made in very, very tiny quantities with very specific barrel regimens and, in fact, specific coopers uh, that we use on a kind of block-by-block block basis. And so what's important to me for white wine, for Chardonnay, is to have this incredibly bright minerality and bright acidity without being masked by, you know, oak or vanilla. <laughs> That's good. And um, right? I tell you, I poured the wine. Um, I, I thought originally, I was like, gosh, it's kind of still tight. And uh, now that it's actually opening up, Chris, what do you think? It has a real nice uh, zestiness to it. A lot of uh, lemon zest, a lot of... Uh uh, some tropical notes, uh, hints of tropical fruit. Minerality comes through as well. Also got some Lee's Contact, which I love because it gives that long, creamy, kind of the, the butterscotch. crunchy butterscotch yeah, finish. Beautiful. Um, lovely. Um, I've got just a little more time left. Let's go right to this uh, Sanford and Benedict Pinot Noir. It's a 2013 vintage Pinot Noir. Um, I- I'm just going to taste it here. Why don't you tell me about it? Yeah, so again, here, here's the, this is the Sanford and Benedict side of the ranch. Uh, this, these, some of this fruit that goes into this wine comes from the old vines, the original founder's vines planted in 72. So they're very, very mature. And again, you know, what you get here in this wine is, you know, if you're tasting it next to the Santa, San, Santa Rita Hills Pinot Noir, it's a little less fruity, a little more earthy, a little bit more minerally, a little bit more extraction, but not over-extracted. Um, we're very careful with the barrel regimen, even though this is 50% new oak, 
this wine can handle that much new oak because of the, the, the subtlety of the toast and the conversations that we have and the tastings that we have with our coopers in France around how their barrels interact with our wines. So it's a pretty wine. It's got some depth to it. I agree. It's got a nice bright acidity. It reminds me definitely of an old world style Pinot because obviously with California it can be very warm. Um, some of those Russian River Pinots can be very voluptuous and very um, overtly generous. Uh, this is the kind of Pinot that, that Pinot lovers want to drink because you get acidity, you got structure. Um, it's quite delicious. And I'm looking at the price. Um, for it's, it's basically a Premier Cru Burgundy wine at, at 60 plus bucks. Yeah, for the most part. And again, you know, we don't make a lot of this wine. It's kind of small production. We make about 900 cases of this wine, and we don't have any problem. Uh, you know, demand is greater than supply, if you will. Uh, <laughs> lucky. <laughs> yeah, we're lucky. But you know what? I mean, luck comes from making wines that are delicious. I think, you know, the first thing people say, what are you thinking about? You know, my first thought is when somebody puts it in their mouth, I, I really want their first visceral response to be, you know, that's really delicious. Mm, I always went to myself the um factor. Hey, John Tolato, um, gosh, let's do this again, can we? Absolutely. All right, John Tolato, thanks so much for taking some time to share Sanford Wines and the story of the Tolato Family Wine Group. Uh, thanks for joining me on Happy Hour Radio. Hey, thank you for having me. Thank you, buddy. All right. Hey, that's John Sanford. Stick around. Uh, I got Chris Nishiwaki here with one more wine that we're going to blind. So stick around on 570 KVI. He's back, and he's in charge. Kirby Wilbur, live and local weekdays, 9 to noon. Talk Radio 570 KVI. KVI Want to Know Weekends. Time for another round of Happy Hour Radio with Christopher Chan. All right. Hey, folks, thanks for tuning in to Happy Hour Radio. Time for our fourth and final segment. Uh, I've got Chris Nishiwaki here in studio, and uh, we're still uh, savoring some of these Sanford wines. And uh, what a treat to have John Trelato of the Trelato Family Wine Group uh, share some stories and some background about how they operate and, of course, uh, saving the whole Sanford program. Uh, pretty fun. Chris, what would you think of that Pinot Noir, the uh, Benedict Sanford Vineyard? I really enjoyed it. It's also interesting to try and contrast with the their Santa Rita Hills uh, appellated Pinot Noir. The difference, had someone asked me that question this week about, well, can you tell quality, can you t- tell price? I think when you try these two wines next to each other, there's the, uh, the, the I guess, not single vineyard, but the two... Appellations, right. Yeah. Two it's, expressions. There's more balance. The transitions are more seamless. It's a it's a longer wine. Yes, the uh, the Santa Rita Hills to me is always has little riper, darker fruit for Pinot Noir. Yeah, and uh, I know they do make a lot of Pinot Noir up there, and it's 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 basically a, a great location for good quaffers. Yeah, and um, Sanford uh, has a it's a delicious wine. I think if we gave it more time in in a glass and decanted it or something. It might might surprise us, but uh, the the Benedict Sanford uh, Pinot Noir is certainly has um, some pedigree to it. Yeah, more complexity. Yeah, nuance. That's what we things. love. Yeah. And he was quite a talker. Holy smokes, he's he's like on it, uh, passionate for sure. That's great. Good to know that a uh, guy with a family name is actually you know able to talk about it, not just uh, talking about numbers and things like that. So uh, you have a second mystery wine here. Um, it looks very similar to the first one. Of course, I kind of uh, uh, swung and whiffed on that one. Um, this has that dark uh, black ruby core with a little bit of uh, the red garnet rim. Um, very light staining of the tears. So it, it doesn't quite look like it's a Malbec or Syrah family, um, but uh, it smells 
similar, a little more barrel on this wine, I believe. It's, uh, it has a little more of that French oak note to it. Um, uh, and, and there's some savory character, but I'm not getting as much uh, herbaceousness as I did in the 13 Claret from Matthews. Mm. She does say like a Malbec, but I don't know. Um, so tell me, how would you describe this wine? The, one of the things that strikes about this wine is the uh, the the palate. It's it's broad but but firm, and generally, when I think of uh, sort of that mouth filling, then a little bit of, even also silky at the same time. I always think of of uh, Merlot. Yeah, uh, it's it's definitely got that that middle palate down. Um, it certainly doesn't have much tannin to it. It's not aggressive. Um, it has great structure though. It's got nice bright acidity and it has a little bit of old world uh, uh, feel to it, mouthfeel, texture. And uh, but the fruit is a little ripe and it finishes more with the fruit and oak. Um, this is probably uh, another Bordeaux blend. This is a different vintage, same wine. No, what is this? This is a 2014 Seven Hills Columbia Valley Merlot. It is a Merlot. Really good winemaking. Uh, Casey McClellan is uh, one of the most experienced, smartest winemakers. Very dedicated and a, a yeah. genuine nice guy. He's, I think he started in 1988, right? Yeah. yeah. And uh, Casey's going to be participating in the Psalm Summit in July, July 9th to 11th. Going to do a retrospective of their wines. He'd be a great person to have on that, on yeah, that panel. Yeah, so fun. Um, how can we find more about you? Do you have a blog? Do you have a website? We are, are you just sort of uh, incognito until we see you on a byline? Uh, it's I, I'm an old traditional journalist, mainly on, in print and a lot of magazines. Uh, I covered the wine beat for Puget Sound Business Journal, uh, freelance occasionally for Inbot Magazine and a bunch of other publications, but it's... Social media, I suppose, uh, these days, that's the way to find me. Do you have a handle? I, uh, it's just my name, Chris Nishiwaki. Nishiwaki. I'm, not, I'm terrible about marketing myself, and that's why <laughs> I don't have a blog. I don't have much of a, an online presence. Uh, well, uh, we have you here, and you certainly do have that voice for radio. So you could you. You, you could find a future here. Uh, this is where, where all wine scribes go. <laughs> that way we're documented. There's, we have this digital file at some point. will be obsolete because there'll be some new deal in the cloud. But, hey, thanks so much for taking some time to, to spend uh, some blind wine tasting with me on Happy Hour Radio. Thank you, Chris. Awesome. Uh, folks, hope you enjoyed John's, uh, John Trelato with uh, Trelato Family Wine Group, the Sanford Wines. Um, they are really a classic. One of the early pi- pioneers of Santa Barbara, uh, Pinot Noir and Chardonnay. Um, you got to respect that because they were the early ones, and the uh, obviously the founders are still um, part of the operation. I saw uh, Mr. Sanford down at SOMCON in San Diego. Uh, Hey, remember, it's Taste Washington coming up at the end of the month, March 24th and 25th, something like that. Um, I will be there. Look for me. We're going to be pouring coral wines. Coral wines are rosé, are white coral, red coral, and pink coral. And when you're out and about... um, Tell everybody you want to try something new, because that's that's my New Year's resolution. I'm sticking to it. I'm trying new stuff and drinking well. And when you're out and about, uh, I invite you to tell your friends about Happy Hour Radio. And you can direct them to our website, happyhourradio.net. we got 140 shows on there. There's always something to learn. And lastly, remember, folks, when you're out and about, uh, life is always better with a designated driver. Cheers. Cheers.